Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. That does sound really good, but it also sounds awful. Well, and what is it? I'll tell you what it is, dear listener. Thanks, James. Uh, sorry. I say two words and you're... Already having a go at you. Okay. What? Which is... <laughs> that basically... Just that, do it again. Do it again. Go on. Dude, dude. It's Japanese for Achtung, Achtung. And yes, it is. Okay. Well, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, the World War II podcast for the chaotic digital non-linear world. And hello, wherever you're listening, I'm James Holland. I'm Al Murray. Now, if you're listening on the day of release, and don't worry, no one's keeping score. You can listen whenever and wherever you like. The miracle of the podcast. But if you are listening on day one, uh, we're, th- this goes out. What was going on in Normandy about now? Wow, interesting times. Rommel has met with Hitler at Margeval, which is this kind of um, huge bunker for the Fuhrer that's been developed in kind of eastern France, which he only ever uses, I think, once. The plan is that he's then the next day, going to, on the 18th of June, he's going to go and actually visit the front in Normandy. Blimey. But a V1 goes a bit wrong, and right. uh, one of the doodle bugs, yeah. uh, and lands not a million miles away, and he thinks, oh, no, it's a bit risky, isn't it? It probably shouldn't. Just I'll go back to the burger. imagine if he'd, got, if he'd gone forward and an ultra had found out. Yep. And you know the way they put a, they put a hit on Rommel. Yeah. Just just imagine. So to be honest, it was probably the right decision. But at that meeting, well, for him, what Rommel is saying is for him. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Mean, steady on there, James. Yeah, yeah. Obviously for him. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't put me in that bracket. I'm not a Nazi. <laughs> You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> well, I'm not a Nazi. <laughs> how, many, how many have we recorded? He's finally, he's finally making I've that clear. I've finally come out. <laughs> no, um, uh, uh, but, but, but what he is saying, what, what they are discussing, what Rommel is saying is, please let me retreat in stages, which is what yes. the Germans have always done in Tunisia, in Sicily, in southern Italy, uh, and what makes most military sense. And one of the reasons why Rommel is so keen to, res- uh, to retreat is because Hitler is saying, no, 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 you've got to fight for every yard. You've got to keep this stick as close to the front, the Normandy front, as you possibly can. A, a, an established bridgehead has been um, connected together by the Allies by this stage. And, and what Rommel's saying is, while we're this close, we're within range of all those offshore naval guns that the Allies have. It's just completely insane. And Hitler just goes, I don't care. You've got to stay fighting to the front, which is why the Germans continue to fight so close without giving very much ground at all which in turn is one of the reasons why Montgomery then gets criticised yeah, yeah. for not making more progress. But actually, you know, he's got Hitler to blame. But, 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 but I mean, suppose Hitler might be looking at the situation thinking, you know, Rommel's saying, well, we need to fall back. And, he, and Hitler thinking, well, that worked well, didn't it? You know. <laughs> well, well, in Sicily and <laughs> yes, Tunisia, well, not. Exactly. It hasn't <laughs> yeah. worked so far. So why, why, well, yeah. why bother? Well, uh, and, and, in, and in Russia... On the Eastern Front, they try shortening their lines or they try punching salients out and they try doing all that sort of thing. do not work either. Um, uh, well, there is an alternative and surrender. Well, of course, surrender, to throw the towel in, but that, that that's not going to happen either. So it, it, it is, I mean, it is this sort of, you can, you, maybe, I mean, is it never impossible to get head into how Hitler's making his decisions anyway? Maybe he thought, well, I've listened to you guys so far and it worked. 
So uh, even well, I think we... it's the other the other point is is that Normandy is the only place up to that point in the war where um, all three services come into play. And okay, yeah. the, the Luftwaffe is massively reduced, the Navy is massively reduced, but you know they have got these Type Twenty One submarines coming into play. You know sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, as it turns out, not till April nineteen forty five. But but you know they're in the yeah, they're, yeah, well, yeah, once the those once those U boat bases have gone, they've gone. You know, you're not going to get them back anytime yeah. soon. So suddenly, you know, Normandy is of far greater strategic but importance well, than, also, than the, Tunisia or indeed, and also, you know, the, and also the, but, but if it, let's say, let's let, I mean, and uh, one of the problems here also is that is that Hitler's assessments of things um, uh, uh, come from. I mean, last week we talked about bad intelligence. Hitler's assessment is not just bad intelligence; it's the fact that. No Panzer Division or, or, or Army Army Group Commander in the German Army is going to go. Well, I can't do that. You know, don't be ridiculous. Yeah. Sorry, boss. Um, you know. Well, they do. Put up quite well, a no, bit so of, bit of, they know. try. They try, especially when it starts going very wrong. They yeah. try to. But, but the point I was trying to make was that the political significance. If you did force the Allies back into the sea, if you, if it did work by holding close and fighting them, you that the blow that that would generate politically is enormous, isn't yeah. it? And that's 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 Hitler's. Way of thinking is that yeah, it's, about, it's about you know you, you know you, t- you talk about shock and awe. We talked about shock. People talked about shock and awe in the Second Gulf War. N- a great deal of the Nazi political um, thinking and sort of military is about striking blows, knocking things down, creating effect. And you look at Operation Lutich, which which comes later. That's about striking a blow. And I I always think Lutich is like a really interesting precursor to the Ardennes Offensive. It's the same thinking. Yeah, it's the yeah, same. Absolutely. We put on a big show. We knock them over. We make them think again, and all that. That that it buys you know, us time. It buys, and then, it buys and then us time, and it something buys else us, will happen, and and it, and, the, and and it buys us morale at home because yeah. if, it's, if it's going well. Whereas you know he may have Hitler may have thought a, a series of defeats is politically unsustainable at home, and of course the thing that the thing that changes his position politically enormously is the July bomb plot, yeah. which then completely changes the complexion of how his c- command structures work, how he motivates morale in Germany, how people, you know, that you've got, a, you've got, you, there's fight, there's, in a way, there's finally been a public attempt on his life. And, and you, Germans are basically so, are told to which side are you on or asked which side are you on quite forcefully. And, and, and that complete, you know, once that, in, in a way there's a window until the July bomb plot, isn't there, where, Maybe he could change his mind, but after that, there's no way he's going to change no, his mind. And not, not anyway. Fight, whatsoever. fight every inch, and and which leads to the Falaise Gap. Yep, directly. Yeah, completely. But on the on the 18th of June, you know, so that's the day after yeah. after Marjorie. That's the day that he would have been visiting the front, and he's now not. I mean, the British and the and the Americans and Canadians are still building up their forces, and you know they're a bit worried actually because the weather's continued to be bad. They're behind yeah. schedule yeah. on what they're building up, and obviously it's it's still vast compared to what the Germans have. But the Germans are still moving their Panzer divisions forward. You know, their 17th. Um, Panzer Grenadier Division has reached the front by this time. You know, immer- you know, heading upwards is the first, second, ninth, tenth SS Panzer divisions. They're all kind of heading towards Although, normally at this stage. As you said the other the other day, I mean, or just ten minutes ago, if you're listening to a, a previous podcast, <laughs> as you said, as you said recently, they're being written down from the air. They can only move at night. Yep. There's no, there's nothing they can do during the day. Um, the railheads have all been destroyed. Uh, um, you know, because we've had point blank already. 
uh, uh, all that happen. Yeah. So, so, but, but, but Monty's under huge pressure to kind yeah. of mount a big offensive. Yeah. Um, and when I say Monty, that's because he is overall overall yeah, land commander yeah, at this yeah, stage, yeah. Uh, and he's going to attack round Col. That's his plan um, with the uh, British Second Army. And Villas Bocage has happened, right? Villas Bocage has happened, but we won't talk about that because it's just a minor little incident of no. <laughs> And, and 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 he's trying to build up forces to do an overwhelming attack. He knows that at some point the Panzer divisions are going to have to mount a coordinated counterattack. Now, and, the, and the plan is to get into them before they have a chance to kind of. So coordinate is this Operation them. Wild Oats that gets dropped? Wild Oats gets dropped. Yeah, this is the kind of through the kind of. Um, now, so the uninitiated, uninitiated Operation Wild Oats is the sort of um, it's an first airborne division who are a strategic reserve who, yep. who famously then end up um, squandered at Arnhem. First Airborne, uh, they're put on readiness. Yep. They're going to capture the airfield outside Caen, aren't yeah, they? Copicay. Yep. Copicay airfield. There's going to be a swing round that, um, that there's the Roman road, isn't there, yep. that the Villas Bocage is on. They, and and the, the idea is that you're going to pivot round Caen and take Caen in a sort of dashing... Because um, there's, there's this gap that's emerged between the yep. 12th SS, yep. Hitler Jugend Division, and the Panzerlehr. Because yep. they're the first two major new units that are arriving yep. at the front. And, and there is this gap. And so the 7th Armour Division, which is landed on D plus 2 to 4, I think, yeah. um, is pushed straight forward in their Cromwells and Shermans. And they're pushed forward. And the lead element reaches there on the morning of, I think it's the 13th of, yeah. of June. Um, and um, they're in there and they're liberate, liberated the town and everyone comes out and cheers and all the rest of it. And by just complete fluke, there is Schwer Abteilung 101, yep. which is a heavy Panzer Battalion 101, which is leaguered up the night before, commanded by our old friend Michael Vipman. Yep. Um, and he goes, oh, that's a bit of an opportunity. I'll go down there and shoot them up. Yep. Um, and that's basically what happens. And actually, he would have had his, his tank knocked out very early on in that gauge, had it not been for the fact that the, the um, uh, six-pounder anti-tank gun that was pointed directly at him at that moment, the gunner, the guy who was actually on the was gun, having was having a slash. Yeah. The way things turn on these tiny moments, but 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 wild oats wild oats didn't happen. That's wild oats like, That's happen. a proper name for an operation. That wild oats didn't happen because Tedder nixed it, didn't he? Yeah. And uh, Monty called him a gutless bugger. Yes. Which I just think because and they didn't like each other. I just <laughs> need to fill the listener. And they didn't. Yeah, they didn't like each other. It goes back to the North African days where where Monty after Alamein really started to kind of go from being you know everyone quite liked him to start off with, but what turned into this sort of Ghastly, yeah, ego, egomaniac, ego, ego prima donna, yeah, yeah. and sort of telling everyone around, thinking he was God's gift, and he just put everyone's back up. And you know, and Tedder and uh, Cunningham never really. Uh, Cunningham was commander of the Second Tactical Air Force by this point, Tactical Air Commander in um, mm. in North Africa. Never really forgave him for for, for that, um, and they were just not quite singing from the same yeah. hymn sheet. But what the big problem was that they were they just hadn't got quite enough. They hadn't got enough there quickly enough to do it it was yeah. always just a, a, an absolute outside chance the whole wild oats one yeah. it was you know it, it was dependent on far too much um everything going according to plan and as everyone knows the first thing that yeah. doesn't happen is the plan goes to shreds but, you, you've probably been looking at another uh, another awful battle where first airborne division was torn to pieces is the you know yeah i'm afraid yeah probably. Uh, and, and you look at you look at i mean famously this the 17 cancelled operations before market garden they're all they're all totally nuts. And yeah. you think, oh, cool, you know, do, do, do people any idea what they're what they're proposing here? Yep. 
And then the second plan was to kind of just push everyone through across the bridges of yep. the Orne and the Canal, move into that kind of uh, the old drop zones for yeah. the sick Fairbourne and push up to the east side of Con and go around that way. Yeah. Then that was abandoned. Then, they, then they, what they really wanted to do was do a three-core attack. And if you think a core is kind of three divisions, divisions like 15,000 men, something like that. So they wanted to do three, and they were, but they were three divisions behind and build up. Yeah. And that was made worse by the great storm that then the great storm happened on the 19th that, to the yeah. 21st. And that more than, more really than, than, German action at that point. The storm is the thing that that intervenes in Allied plans yeah. more than more than full stop more than anything else because it wrecks the American Omaha. Yeah. It, it, uh, 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 Mulberry. Uh, Mulberry, rather. Sorry. Yeah. Um. Uh, 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 and and really does sort of boulevard plans and the and the and the, you know, it's all very well getting into who's tactically better and all that the stuff that you you might read elsewhere, but the, the that storm is a massive material. Yeah. Plans. So, so Second Army is supposed to supposed to attack on quite a not a broad front, but but on a very concentrated front. Yeah. You know, with these three corps. And in the end, they have to launch Operation Epsom on the 26th of June with with two corps, one corps in the main attack yeah. and the second one Martlet on the side the day before around Fontenay le Pesnel. And they have to do this because they know that these panzer divisions are massing and what they can't allow them to do is mass themselves into any kind of sort themselves out. They've got to kind of chew them up as they come in. So catch them off balance. So so Epsom's already got a lot of things going against it before it's even launched. Also, the weather is really taking a turn, which means the air power can't come into play in the same way. So actually Epsom achieves a huge amount because it does absolutely kicking to touch once and for all any chance of a German counterattack. I mean, yeah. you know, after Epsom, there is not going to be a reverse in Normandy yeah. at all. I mean, it's unlikely before, but it is absolutely... Certainly never going to Certainly never going to happen afterwards. And actually, it achieves quite a lot. Right, well, there we are. There you go. Snapshot yeah. of, of uh, the... Well, that was already... also quite free-ranging, wasn't it? Even yeah, just that well, little bit. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, Chris Patterson, um, uh, who's found us on the We Have Ways hashtag, says, he, not the email, the We Have Ways podcast at gmail.com. He's not used the email because he's not old. Is it true there was a Korean guy who fought for the Japanese, the Russians, and the Germans? And when is the movie of his, of his life coming out? Asks Chris Patterson. Is, is it true? Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, in fact, actually, Anthony Beaver started his entire D Day book with this. With this story, yeah, um, this, this, yeah, yeah, he was, he was, he was. Um, I think he was. No, he was fighting against the Japanese, I think, and then was captured by the Japanese, right. was then captured by the Russians, fought with the Russians, then captured by the Germans, fought with the Germans, transferred to the West, captured by the Americans, sent off to a prison war camp in 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 the United States, and that's where he stayed for the rest of his life. Right. So it founded had happy KFC ending. or something. Have happy ending, but there were all sorts of sort of weird <laughs> stories of people. Like, and I actually. Um, when I was sort of, um, I was sort of scouting around looking through the amazing um, Imperial War Museum photo archives, um, looking at all the Normandy stuff, and they've got zillions of photos there. I came across. Um, uh, I can just show you the picture of this little chap here. Um, he's actually a ten-year-old Russian wearing German. I'll, I'll put this up, what? but he is Nikolai Pankov. A Russian. The boy's father, it says on the back of the photo, was a lieutenant in the Russian army and with his mother was killed by the German invaders. He was then um, looked after by a Russian soldier. This Russian was then captured and transported and compelled to fight for the Germans and he took the boy with him. And Nikolai was eventually adopted by the German 3rd Company 990 Grenadier Regiment and became their mascot for 14 months. 
Jesus Christ. During which time he was dressed and trained to take his place beside the German soldiers at the front. He was then captured by the British on the 17th of August. And there he is. Actually, to be fair, he doesn't look any worse or wear for it, does he, really? No. But, but amazing. Ten years old, wearing little, you know, and he's got one of his, you know, the, the classic German field caps. He's got his... That'd be a great um, where are they now, wouldn't it? Yeah, I wonder where he's still alive. Nikolai like, Pankov. could be. Could but, be. you know, it's very much, um, you know, we had all sorts of people fighting for the coalition forces, the allied forces, and the, the Germans had all sorts of people fighting for them. I mean, you know. Cossacks and Cossacks, all sorts. Cossacks, yeah, French, Alsatians. They yeah. had Norwegian, Swedish, Dutch. Yeah. And there's that Belgian guy who Hitler said, you know, you're like a son to me. Yeah. What was he called? Um, de Grel. Yeah. Leon de Grel. Yes, because I've read Guy Sager's book, the, the, who's yes. an Alsace Frenchman who fought, yeah. Alsace German who fought in um, on the Eastern Front. Yeah, uh, great and, book. It's a great book, but such a weird story. And, and and all the Germans thought regarded him as a Frenchman. You know, they were suspicious of him. <laughs> madness, yeah. the whole madness. Right. Okay. And there were of course Indians as well fighting for the um, for, for the Germans. Yeah. And a Muslim uh, outfit from um, uh, Bosnia, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. So a lot. So lots of different people. And, and you know, I can't stress it enough. You know, you, you most of the action in, in Nazi Germany might have taken place in Europe, but this really was a world war. Yeah. You know, and it really did involve people and and dislocate people from all across the planet. Yeah. And that's what's that's why it's so incredible. And it's such a incredible period of unprecedented global human drama. I think. Yeah. And why it continues to fascinate. Yep. Alan Callow asks, has Eisenhower been underestimated as a field commander, especially at the bulge? He seems to have been brilliant. Hmm. But most works talk only of his political skills. Well, he wasn't he, he, he wasn't a field commander, was he? He wasn't a field commander. It's interesting because I was talking to someone, I was talking to Rob Satino. He's a very, very brilliant American academic, done an awful yeah. lot of work on the um, on the German armies in, in the um, Second World War and further back, actually. But... We were talking about Eisenhower just the other day. We were standing in Grosvenor Square, kind of yawning about, about mm. Ike. Um, and actually, I think, you know, he's got all the attributes, really, to have been a very, very good field commander because, you know, he understands that operational level. He understands air, land and sea and how they coordinate together in the kind of allied way of war. He's a brilliant administrator, a brilliant planner. He knows instinctively as he progresses up the ranks that you've got to let, let go and give your subordinates... Um, some leash and and yeah. but, you know use their initiative and all the rest. You've got to enable them um, rather than kind of restrict them. You mustn't micromanage. You know he does that brilliant line about about you know every time I read something I want to kind of rewrite it, but I mustn't let it be rewritten. I've, it's their words, not mine. As long as the essence is correct, that's all that matters. Yeah. You know, so he he gets all that, and he is a brilliant, brilliant diplomat. And I can't really see why he would be a poor field commander. Although I would say, of all the ones to use as an example, the bulge is possibly not the one. Because that's that's actually probably where he was his absolute weakest. But I think Barnard, I mean, a huge admirer. Completely misread the situation. Completely. And also, said it the other day, or or maybe 50 minutes ago, depending on when you were listening, um, uh, the Arden is the high ground um, that you need to get to dominate the Meurs. and. And the fact that the, I mean, the Germans came through the Ardennes in uh, in 1870, in uh, 1914, Sudan, yeah, and they yeah. tried to do it again, and they do it in 1940, and they tried to do it again mm. in 1944. Yeah, through the scene of Hitler's greatest triumph. Exactly. I mean, come on, right? I mean, I think, I mean, it's quite interesting that the Allies sort of don't, don't, I mean, they the, they fall into the trap again. That we've talked about with D-Day, where they where they expect the Germans to fight the the, the 
kind of the way they have before and also the kind of the reasonable the way you would rationally, which is in, 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 normally they expect them to fall back in a retreat and to better positions and they don't. And you, by the end of 1944, they're not, what they're not expecting or, or imagining the Germans are going to do is try and do some sort of hammer blow thing, like they gamble thing like they do in the RDN. They, they, don't, they don't see it coming because it doesn't make any it doesn't make any real it military make any sense. sense at all, right? Because if you if you if if in the end what you're trying to do is defend the Reich, you don't try and seize. But, but it is Antwerp. absolutely. <laughs> but it is absolutely the German way of war. To, well, the, to, well the, you know, attack the, is the best form of defense. The Hitlerian, I mean, the Hitlerian way of war, you know. Well, well it was, but it's also the Frederick the yeah, Great yeah, way yeah, of yeah, war yeah, as yeah, well, yeah, and yeah, the kind of yeah. you know Bismarck era yeah. kind of way of war as well. I mean, you know, there is a long tradition of the Germans using kind of attack as the best form of defence because yeah. in a long, you know, defence tends to get attritional. Well, when you go to attritional fight, you're not going yeah, yeah. to win because you're in the middle of Europe and you haven't got access to resources and you haven't got access to yeah. world's oceans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so, yeah. so there is, a, there is a kind of sort of warp logic to it, but there isn't much logic when you're absolutely fucked and not going <laughs> to win the war yeah. to do a counterattack in winter, in the snow, in the Ardennes. It doesn't really make a huge amount of sense. No, I mean it makes no sense at all. But and that's that's maybe you know that's Eisenhower's mistake. This is mistake and misreading the kind of the the, the intelligence traffic. And you know Bradley's the, the the same. They both kind of fall yeah. for that one. But I think he. I mean, I, listen, I, I have enormous admiration for Eisenhower. I think he was a really really great man. So we got another one here. Big D says, "Where was the German Navy on D-Day, and how important were spies like Juan Puyol Garcia, mm. also known as Garbo Alaric?" Well, well, that's a two-pronged question, well, if ever there was one. Well, the German Navy on D-Day was saying, do we, do we have to? Do we have to <laughs> go we out? Do we have to go out there? Okay, we're in our S-boat. Okay, we can do 50 knots, so yeah. let's just make a dash right across yeah. the Bay of the Seine. Yeah, I mean, the the, the German Navy... The, yeah, the, the German Navy was there and did what it could, but the sort of... The big hitters of the German Navy were holed up in Norwegian fjords, yes. hiding from 617 Squadron. Yeah, sort of rather underlying the kind of mistaken policy that they'd adopted in 1938 with the Z plan of kind of yeah. trying to build a large surface fleet when, you know, a small fleet is is much, much more sensible of U-boats and surface vessels and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So the German Navy basically... Where it was on DVD Day was either at the bottom. But of the they ocean. did sink stuff. They did sink stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to yeah. be fair, the Luftwaffe oh, yeah. came and sunk ships out in the night, um, and and um, S boats did come out and you know torpedo ships and stuff. Yeah. They did go down. Yeah. Um, and they were a pain in the ass. Um, but I've got to say, have you ever? Have you, you know, there is one S boat left, which is um, Kevin no. Wheatcroft is is slowly but surely um, rebuilding down really? in a in a yeah in a boatyard just opposite Plymouth. These things are so cool. I mean, you know, I just so want to see one being <laughs> out on the sea again. They're seriously quick. 50 knots. I mean, yeah. that is going yeah. some. For them, but that, that, that's very It's fast. the same old thing because you can see the woodwork on this. Some bits of the kind of surface of, because it's being reconst- yeah. you know, re- rebuilt. So you can see parts of the original woodwork. And it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's shipbuilding engineering on a kind of scale which is just impossible to mass produce because yeah. it's so complex. It's so skilled. It's such a thing of beauty. that You can never kind of mass produce them in any shape or form. Yeah. So, of course, this is why they don't ever have very many of them, but those that they do are absolutely brilliant. Uh, so Juan Pujol Garcia, yeah, yes. absolutely. I mean, you know, he's key to it. He has something like, I think, 22 
fake agents or something. That's all right, completely yeah. fictitious. I mean, yeah. it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Yeah, they, they play great. Well, because we win the intelligence battle before D-Day. They run out of a flat in Hendon or somewhere, wasn't he? Yeah, somewhere up there, yeah. yeah. Up, up North London. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Collindale, that's right. Yeah. That's yeah. A, a flat in Collindale. So whenever I drive yeah. around the North Circular... The M1, you think I think. Of, you think of, think of Garbo, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, well, the referee's blown his whistle for halftime. Hang on, I've stumbled into the wrong podcast. James and I will be back in a moment. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. I thought we might have a chat about something raised by one of our listeners, Jack Waterhouse, who asks, is it true that we had brilliant espionage, or is that just propaganda on our side? Hashtag we have ways because that's the hashtag if you want to get in touch. Well, yeah, we did, yeah, we did. Although we did have disasters, so of course, uh, what um, happened in the Netherlands, where basically everyone was everyone was rumbled. Yeah, and SOE in France, they had those um the, those big circuits that were kind of knocked out, and yeah. they had them running, and yeah, Germans knew exactly what was coming in. So yeah, Violet Charbot and people yeah. came in and got immediately, yes, captured, yeah, tortured. Yeah. Executed at Ravensbrück, etc. Yeah, because it because the thing is, is uh, you 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 know you have, for instance, in Holland, when the whole of SOE being sprung, is that you had a portion of the Dutch population who had been kind of sympathetic to um, some of the political ideas doing the rounds in the thirties, if it's one way of putting it, and uh, and and so it was always. I mean, these things are these things are incredibly difficult to to organise and to put people in, and in Fra- France, obviously. As well, you have you have people blowing hot and cold the whole time. Yeah. Well, the development of the French resistance is just so interesting because, of course, you know, some things that you have to have for resistance to work, and one of them is hope. There has to be a sense yeah. that there is a light at the end of the tunnel that you're going to be, end up on the on the right side. And this is this is a case for any any civil war or anything that yeah. uh, throughout the history of of mankind. And you know, up until. You know, late 1942, 1943, you know, th- th- there isn't an awful lot of hope. And, you know, everyone's so, so shocked. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? We were talking about sort of Dunkirk and stuff the other day and, and you know, how many Frenchmen were, were lifted. You know, were loads loads of Frenchmen lifted. And most of them chose to go back to France yeah. because they thought, well, you know, it's all right, I've got an armistice. You know, how hard can it be? You know, yeah. you know, we're all Europeans together. You know, lots of people are kind of, sort of fed up in France of the kind of 13 different governments or however many it was, yeah. coalitions, the kind of rise of the communists and polarisation and popularism and all that. You know, maybe a better bit of strong arm leadership is what we need, yeah. actual fact. You know, yeah. at least I'll be safe. At least I won't be dying on the, on the front by yeah. last year. I won't have to sort of, you know, drain my blood over the fields of Verdun. Done, um, you know. So you can see why people did it, and of course, if that's your kind of collective thought process, then it's going to take time for resistance to build up. Yep. And of course, resistance is going to be disparate. It's going to be little pockets of it all yep. over the place. And you know, this is where Jean Moulin comes in. You know, yep. the, the, the most famous resistor of them all, because he's the one who's originally going to go to. He's a he's a, a prefect in the Loire district. Um, um, gets put in prison by the Germans for kind of being forced to say that some people who were killed was actually killed by French colonial troops when they weren't and he knew yeah. it. So he's tried to stab himself to death. Um, that that failed. And he then decided to kind of emigrate to, to the um, to the US. And as he's getting into Spain and he's suddenly thinking, mm, actually, maybe I can do some good here. So he then goes and sees the British in, I think, Lisbon, yeah. Gets uh, eventually gets sort of vetted, gets taken over to Britain, gets briefed and all the rest of it. And he goes, okay, right, send me back into France. I'll go on a fact-finding mission. Goes back into France, does this fact-finding mission of kind of seeing what's out there how you can sort of coalesce resistance 
And he, although he is very, very left-wing leaning, and, and Gen General de Gaulle, who is the commander of the Free French yeah. base in London, is very right, much right-wing, Jean Moulin says, look, we've got to have one focus. Yeah. Uh, and really, just in the interest of the war, we can all think about our politics after the war, but just we've got to all be as one. Yeah. And we should really fall behind his cross of the rain flag. And this is what we should do. And he's the one who actually starts getting all these disparate units, these, these different... Um, resistance movements to start working towards together uh, and it's not really until really until kind of beginning of 1944 really that there is a kind of coordinated proper sense yeah. of there being a french resistance that can really actually do something and that you know everyone's a bit sniffy about the french resistance says oh yeah of course they're french resistance you know everyone's resistance in 1944 but but it was still absolutely horrific because there was also Conversely, there was the Malice, uh, and you know, and Klaus Barbie famously said, yeah. you know, I only had a you know few hundred men, you know, and I didn't need any more because I had hundreds of Frenchmen doing all my work for me. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and that was absolutely true. And it's very you have to remember that for every resistor, there's a kind of you know, there's a pro Axis, hardliner, anti-communist. Yeah, and well, a lot well, of people well, are pro this because well, of this fear of the well, West and you have it in the, in, in the south of France. You have a lot of people, um, uh, communists who've escaped Spain from the. Um, People left over from the Civil War hold up in the south of France, which is Vichy, of course. And and then and where do they fit into that picture? The resistance picture there, and you, you get these these incidents where you've got that the, um, uh, Spanish uh, communist resistance people working with left wing French communist people, and, yep. and that whole political element. And of course, of course, and we've talked about this before. If you're a proper proper Comintern communist. You, you you twiddle your thumbs until July forty one anyway. You you, you yep. because the Nazis are friends with Stalin. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you haven't picked a side yet. But it's really interesting. A lot of the resistance, the resistance movements develop out of um, out of of um, self flagellation yeah. by the by the side. So in the case of Italy um, and in the case of France, what happens is the French Vichy government says, right, all French young men have got to go and kind yeah. of you know do do national work for the Germans. Exactly the same thing happens in Italy. Right, all Italians of the kind of you know 1924, yeah. 25th kind of consignment, they have to they have to go and join, you know, the SS police force or the kind of yeah. new um, neo-fascist divisions of Mussolini or go and work in Germany. And everyone sort of goes, you know what, I don't really fancy that. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll run to the hills and become an outlaw. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and suddenly you've got a kind of, you know, you've got a vast amount of people who are Ooh. angry, yeah. uh, who are kind of living in the shrubland or the mountains of the Apennines or the Maquis, yeah. uh, which is why they're called the Maquis, um, who are prepared to kind of, you know, resist. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a kind of self-inflicted wound from the point of view of of the um, of the kind of host, you know, the, of the Italians, fascists, and yeah. the, the Vichy French. But anyway, anyway, what have you got there? So again, another little digression from um, Garbo. But um, uh, so here, this is my kind of my thing for the week. This is a Zold book, and this is what every German. Um, a member of the armed, armed forces would have, and this is his kind of like his identity card. It is his pay book. Um, it's everything, and and these are where you would be issued your uniforms, and you get these dockets, and you, you get them. If you lose it, you have to your pay gets docked, and all the rest of it. And this is an original one, and I just think it's interesting because every time I look at it, I just wonder what happened to what happened to uh, Andreas Dieterman. And it's got all these different details in it. You can see he joins and. Uh, when he joins on the 20th of May 1942, he's born on the um, set of the 8th of February um, 1909 in Essen, which of course gets very badly hammered by the RAF. He's quite old then. 
he's quite old, which is why he's coming in late. So he would have been your classic guy who would have been in a factory in Essen, yeah. almost certainly, yeah. and, and is pulled out of the factory because they need more so manpower and is replaced. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. Replaced yeah. By, he's replaced by a disgruntled French bloke or a Absolutely. displaced Russian or whatever. Yeah, and he's blonde, Ukrainian. he's got blue eyes, um, he sounds the kind of Aryan, um, you know, absolute prototype. Yeah. Um, but, you know, here are all these Nazi stamps. And whenever you look at them, they just, it puts a little bit of a chill down your uh, down your spine, I think. Um, and at the back Sorry. of it, um, yeah, here you are. God, look at it. Look at them all. And at the back here is some other stuff, um, including some Reichsmark. There's a five Reichsmark note. There's various um, Ausweiskart. You know, this is a kind of sort of travel pass. A Hafenzeitausweis. You know, an Ausweis is a, is a pass, isn't it? It's yeah. a kind of, you know, so 4th of July, 1944. So still around then. It's just, it's just this little tactile link, isn't it, to someone who was real. You know, this is not a black and white photograph. This is a real person. He's an yeah. MG. He's a machine gunner. You know, and I'm a I'm a massive believer in and here I don't know what this is another another pass Andres Dijkman signed by whoever it is Oberleutnant and Comptführer, and this is stamped by Captain Hartmann H Kampf, something yeah so it's the chief of the camp. But I just think it's um you know I think it's really really important as a historian to actually not just sit at your desk looking at books, yeah. but actually to get out there walk the ground. Feel stuff, look at tanks, fondle the barrels, um, but also kind of look at uniforms and look at little things like this. So, you know, it tells you a lot, doesn't it? It it it, it certainly does. It puts it puts a, a person right in there. And also, you know, it's a glimpse of a culture, isn't it? I had a friend of my a friend who was a was a baker in um Dusseldorf who fought on the he was twice wounded on the Eastern Front, then then eventually captured in northern Italy, chap called Franz Marsen. And every time he got wounded and lost his his jacket. You then go for a replacement. They go, right, that'll be docked from your wages. Right. I mean, Jesus, can you believe it? Hair blonde. Algen blau. Blue eyes, like you yeah. say. And, there's his, and, and there is his military career in that little kind of thin yeah. paper yeah, booklet. Yeah, 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 yeah. And everyone had one of these. Mother's mate, uh, your wife's maiden name. Cecilia born Ludwig. Extraordinary. So he's in the infantry. So, I mean, well, the, that's an ersatz battalion. That's a training battalion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the other thing is this: a lot of this, um, uh, dear listener, is in extreme gothic type. That not only is it in German, <laughs> but it's in this sort of heavy gothic type. That's actually quite hard to read if you're not accustomed to it. Um, what an extraordinary thing! Impfungen. Here we go. Italy. Yep. Wow, I do wonder what happened to him. Yeah, don't you? He's had his. It, 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 um, there's a page of of the inoculations he's had. I mean, it is literally everything. Typhus, it is, it is, paratyphus, yeah. cholera. Yeah. So it's a snapshot and it'd, of. And it needed all of those in Italy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Snapshot of a soldier's life, isn't it? And where did you get this from? I can't remember. Someone gave it to me. I think it was given to me by Oliver Barnum. He's a right. he's a collector. His father actually was a Spitfire pilot in in Malta called Dennis Barnum. And Oliver is actually, he's the only person to have restored a Japanese tank. Um, uh, which they were talking about last week when we were, the other of week when we were involving. Of course you know someone who's the only person who restored a Japanese tank. 
But anyway, I think he gave it to me. That is so quite. Would a, I be interested in having one of these? Quite the said, thing. Yeah, yeah, and he's got that in his top pocket wherever he goes. Doesn't yep, he? it fits in there. Yep, there it is. Unbelievable. Well, time for us to bed down in a barn. But before we go, two quick plugs. If you haven't yet bought James's brilliant book on Normandy, <laughs> Normandy Forty Four. Why not? It's essential homework for the pod. Please read chapters one to three by next week. I'll be asking questions. Excellent. Uh, well, thank you, Al. Um, and if you fancy coming along to see us record the podcast live, we will be at the Chalk Valley History Festival on the 29th of June at midday. And we'll be taking your questions and answering as many as you can. And just so you know, Chalk Valley History Festival is about 10 miles southwest of Salisbury. It's a completely safe city now. It's yep. been cleared of any kind of dodgy toxins. Um, and um, Chalk Valley itself is absolutely beautiful, and it's yes. a lovely place. And that weekend, oh, my God, it's going to be great. There's so much going on. We've got – who else have we got apart from you? Um, we've also got uh, Dan Snow coming, Neil Oliver, various other people, the great and the good. Basically, anyone who's the got – The D-Day a, darlings. Anyone who's got a history book out but isn't able to get a plug for it on this podcast – it's going to be a Chalk Valley History Festival. Yeah. And we've even got stuff that's nothing related to um, Second World War. Oh, Amazing. my goodness me. I know, can you believe it? Well, in the meantime, please do contact us on Twitter using the hashtag WeHaveWays. And it really helps if you subscribe, rate and review us on whichever podcast platform you use. Yep. That's goodbye from us then. <laughs> it is. And it's Cheerio. us from him. 